welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, where we interview the senior leaders in large accounting firms and networks to talk about juicy topics like leadership, vision, culture, talent, growth, change, performance and strategy. I'm your host Rob Brown and I'm delighted to introduce today's guest who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Praxity Alliance, Graham Gordon. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. It's great to have you with us Graham and just for the benefit of people listening that may not have come across you, would you just tell us a bit about your colourful background and your expertise? <laughs> uh, well, I'm the Chief Executive of Praxity, which is the Global Alliance. My background is many and varied. In fact, my children used to have a, a game when we were long car journeys to try and work out something I had not done. <laughs> but in Praxity, having finished university, I then went to be a researcher for the UN in anaerobic genetics. Then I joined the Royal Navy in the fleet air arm, so helicopters. Did a number of things until eventually having my own franchise and double glazing. Goodness. Then I realized I was paying an accountant to do work I was pretty damn sure I could do myself. <laughs> and being a, a black-hearted Scot, I decided to become a chartered accountant. And uh, shortly after qualification, was enticed by the NFL, the American football, to come and join them. And the rest, as they say, is history. Goodness me. So what a journey you've had to get here. D tell us yeah. what attracted you about Praxity. Well, I was actually retiring. I had been the CFO and COO of a large listed software company, which had been bought off the market by Peter Associates. I had a nice little parachute, and I thought I'd just get some non-exec directorships, etc. I actually took the job exactly nine years ago today. Crikey. And you're still there. So much yeah. for retirement. Correct. Mm. What do you love most about what you do? The variety and the fact that I feel I can actually make a difference. I can actually help our member firms and the partners they're in to make a difference for their clients. Praxi is a very unique animal. There are a couple of other so-called alliances around, but we're the only truly global one of our sort of status and, and size. Combined turnover, we're slightly higher than Grant Thornton and just behind BDO, so it gives wow. you a, sort of an idea. Yeah, so you call it an alliance. Is there any distinction between that and a network? Yes. If you look at it in the dictionary definition, the answer is no. Right. But if you look at the regulatory, we've got IFAC, you know, the International Federation of Accountants. They have a rule as to what is a network. And if you are a network, what you must do. For example, if you're a network, you must use the same name. You must have identical procedures, etc. Yeah. There's a, a list of seven things. And if you have five out of seven of these flags, you are deemed to be a network. And then you must follow these criteria. And actually, we don't tick any of those seven boxes on purpose. All the firms use their own names. They use their own procedures. We're very careful to do all of that so that nothing takes us to the net worth status. Uh, the average size of Praxity firms is about 150 to 200 million turnover. We've got a couple that are really large. In America, we have six firms, which collectively, I think, would make them something like the third or fourth largest firm in America if they join together, but they won't. The goodwill they've got in their own names is so high, you don't want to change the name. Okay. What questions might an accounting firm ask themselves in considering whether to become part of Praxity Alliance? Do they have a real international need or cross-border need? The one thing you don't come to Praxity for is to get referrals to your firm. It's threefold. It's to retain clients. So clients who are getting bigger have footprints outside your own or needs outside your own specialty. 
that you can use practically firms to supply them or to acquire new clients. The other unique part of an alliance is no firm has to use one of our own firms. And we have multiple representations in different firms. I mean, our biggest firm is Mazars, right? Yeah. And they, as you probably know, is based in Paris in France. Now, we actually have two firms in France on purpose. If your client has a role they need fulfilled, Mazars can certainly fill it. If you have something that both of them could do, but not, you don't want to use either of them, there is nothing to stop you using someone else that you know that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're in a network, you have to use the, someone who's in the network. And there's only one firm in one location for most networks. Mm. So you don't know the people. We are very, very strong in making sure that our partners, particularly the senior partners, but all the tax partners get to know each other from around the world, or the audit partners get to know each other from around the world, the assurance, test, consulting, so they get to know their opposite numbers. Hmm. So that they can turn to their client and say, okay, you have a need in Nottingham. Well, I know Rob Brown in Nottingham. I've met him a couple of times. He will look after you. Yeah. You bring up an excellent point. I'm speaking at an accounting network in a few months' time, and the topic of my talk is collaboration because they want to reinforce those relationships Uh, not just across countries, but within countries as well with member firms. And it's not something that happens. You you can't leave it to chance. You've almost got to be very intentional with it and give people the skills to do it. Otherwise, they're not going to refer and introduce and reach out to each other if they don't know and trust each other. You're absolutely right. And to be honest with you, the the chief executives of most of the Group A networks Hmm. are below the big four. We all meet quite regularly and we know each other quite well. When I started, the first thing I did is I had uh, speed dating at the beginning of our managing partners conference. Like it. I got to say that the French board member looked at me and said, it's supposed to be an icebreaker. Why are you doing speed dating? I said, just watch. And we had them lined up and you sat opposite someone and for two minutes you had to talk about yourself. And then for the next two minutes, they talked about themselves and their right. firm. And then the There was a chime and you moved along. And it was so successful. There was a blockage and it was this same French guy who was so into it at the end. He was sitting still. As people moved, he kept talking to people he'd been speaking to (laughs) and the person stood in front of him. But he wouldn't move, which meant the people to his left were bunching up. He was a dam. And to his right, there were about six or seven seats that were empty. And I had to physically uh, get him to move. He said afterwards, you know, okay, that was, that was great. And it, it is, you're right. And, and how important is it to match the values of your alliance with the values of the member firms? Value is very important, but I'd say culture is the real. Yes, probably a better key. word. Yeah. Now, one of our firms, I'll, I'll give you a prime example, MMP, which is a Canadian firm, they merge with 10 firms a year. That's a pretty dramatic amount. I quizzed at some length their chief executive as to how the hell they do that, because I know having seen just a simple one-off merger, it's kind of difficult. Yeah. He said, I don't ask about pension plans or margins or all the rest of it. The first thing I do is I make absolutely certain the culture fits. If the culture fits, we'll take them in and we'll deal with the other financial issues going forward. And if their remuneration, their partner remuneration is higher than ours, then great, because all I've got to do is get everyone else's up to theirs. Right. And if their partner remuneration is less than us, they've got five years to get theirs up to ours. We've got a process we can go through. But if the culture doesn't fit from the start, there's no point in taking them on board. But if it fits, it doesn't matter. We can go for it. 
But culture is difficult to assess. You can't just have a walk around the office and get a feel for culture. So how do you properly gauge that? You talk about uh, due diligence. Yes, you have to walk around, but you can talk to clients. You can look at peer reviews and you can go out with the major players in the firm and have social events with them. The way they present themselves on things like LinkedIn helps, but there's only one ultimate way of doing it, and that's eyeballing. Yeah, you can't beat face-to-face. You've been in the game nine years now with Praxity. What have you seen change over those years? Because we're in challenging times, aren't we? Yeah, it's the concept within the public of what an audit is. The understanding has got worse, not better. And their expectation is now greater because all these things have gone down. And if you get a, a failure, the first thing you look at is how can you get a failure when the auditors have given them a clean bill of health? Mm. They forget, of course, that the clean bill of health refers to something that happened anything up to 18 months before. Yeah, The thing that's coming more to the fore now and will be much more uh, important and have much more in-depth work done on it actually is going concern. You know, we'll, we'll still only be able to look at history. You know, no one's crystal ball, even an AI crystal ball ain't that good. Mm. But you know, we'll be able to look at the history and we'll be able to check for the issues and we'll be able to look for the fraud. When I trained, we were always told you know, that we're watchdogs, not bloodhounds. The expectation is we'll become much more bloodhounds when using AI, you're able to look at 100% of the processes and 100% of the issues. The going concerns is the area that I think is going to come up. How exciting is it to be an accountant at this time? Well, I find it very exciting. Also, I'm very fortunate because I don't actually see any clients. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What other qualities do you think make a very good modern-day accountant? Empathy. You have to understand the other person's point of view. I was CFO of two listed companies. And when my auditors came in, I felt the the best value I got were those that actually understood where I was coming from and the issues I was facing and therefore could apply themselves to that particular aspect. I talked about the software firm. We had a good big four partner in charge of the audit when I arrived. He was rotated off, so we decided to do a beauty parade. And we gave the same big four the chance to come back with their new partner. Another big four was brought in as well, as were a group A and a local firm, because there's revenue recognition amongst many other things, but revenue rec in a software company is very, very big issue. Yes. And how, how you deal with it. And we also had a number of share valuations and, and share schemes for employees. So we needed someone who had the appropriate skill sets. And the person we actually employed was the person who came with the level of empathy. They understood not only the technical side of things, uh, but they understood issues we would be experiencing and how we want to present the, the files, etc. They also understood us and why we were keen to get that right. And that was it, the, the, sort of the empathy there. But are they born with empathy or is that coachable? No one, I think, is born with it. Some people find it naturally just the way they, they go through life. It, mm. it comes up. But I think most people can learn it. Some people have actually had it knocked out of them. The accountants in the sort of the turn of the last century, they had this sort of stiff upper lip British attitude. Mm. It was, we are a profession and therefore we have to maintain this sort of professional base. And I think nowadays there's still some people who that's sort of drummed into and they're very good at the back. At, but not out with the people. And, and they, they won't win necessarily win the business, but they're very good at doing the business. And there are still some people there. 
And yeah. I think for the, to win clients, to retain clients, you do need to have that level of empathy. You can have it trained if you see you know, how people are doing it, but you also have to be aware that it's necessary. Yeah. I'm intrigued by the different sizes of firms that you've got. And looking at the, the firm-wide leaders, the managing partners of them, is it like a mixed ability class? Is there a different mentality running a small firm than a large firm? And what makes a good managing partner? The answer to your first question is no. A good managing partner in a small firm is has most, if not all, of the same qualities as a good managing partner in a large firm. Right. Because the large firm, he or she is primarily dealing with like the executive committee, his management group, uh, six to 10. Mm. And in a small firm, the management group is your entire partners of six to 10. Yeah. And so in that sense, you're dealing the same. And whereas uh, the, the large firm, you're delegating down, then with the small firm, you, de- you also are delegating, but through your partners to the management to managers, you want someone that people are happy to follow, that they have trust in, that has a vision that they've sold and people have bought into. If you've got that, then the firm will will succeed. When he or she gets to the point that they've sort of run out of steam or they're treading water, yeah, that is when things can get stale mm-hmm. and the firm doesn't necessarily go forward. We're fortunate. Virtually all of our firms have increased their turnover and maintained it. But that's also down to the way that we work and one of the values of practicing, you know, maintaining experience and best practices and interaction. My American firms coined a phrase, co-opetition. Yeah. So they openly compete with each other for new clients that aren't clients of their own firms. Equally, they will collaborate together or cooperate together on projects that need a geographical basis they don't have or specialties they don't have. What can firms in the UK learn from their overseas counterparts and, and vice versa, Graham? I can only speak for my firms and the cooperation within my firms and the benchmarking within the UK firms has proved very useful. So they can look at everything from recovery and percentages and salaries, just like myself and the other networks and alliances, 80 to 90% of the, the situation is the same. Yeah. But equally, if someone has a, a situation that's unique to them, it's probably been faced by someone else in the alliance before good point and they, they can say has anyone had this issue yeah my clients got this issue any of your clients had it how do you resolve it and in the geographies where that works the best the firms probably get the best value yeah and that's why in my uh, global conferences for managing partners uh, i make sure that there's plenty of time for that level of small end networking and people talk about quasi unique situations they've had and how they're resolved so we, we go through whether it's business development for managing partners or technical aspects for tax guys or dare i say the b word and if anyone does know what's going on brexit they tell me as well please <laughs> but um we go through that and we can talk it through with other people. And even if no one has experienced it, people have had uh, similar experiences that we can use to go through. This is great, Graham. A couple more questions. You like to be your legacy. When we finally shuffle you off at 85 or however old you are from practicing, what do you yeah. want people saying about you after you've gone? He did good. <laughs> um, it was that, that I added value to practicing. I'd like to think added value to the profession. I'd like the firms and the managing partners and the upcoming partners there to say that I added value to them and their clients. Yeah. 
Is running an accounting alliance any different to running a group of Navy men on a mission? Yes, <laughs> um, very much so. As an officer, I could tell people to do something and I would expect them to do it. Right. I actually find that um, actually invigorating because I have to persuade people that my ideas are there. So I, I, it's not a case of, look, we've got this good idea. We're going to do it this way. We've worked it out. This is what we will do. Mm. Well, I, I have to come at it and, and I've got my board, highly qualified, very senior managing partners from very senior firms. And so to do anything, I have to persuade them of the logic the sense, the ROI, all the rest of it of doing these things. And you know, they, they look at me quite strongly because in, in the head office here, myself and, and Helen, my number two, the COO, we are the ones who keep, try to keep our fingers on the pulse and try to make sure that we, we bring forward those things will best benefit the firms in the future. Yeah, in any business, uh, and an accounting business, just the same. You've got to be looking 18 months to five years ahead to make sure you've got the resources you need. Well, let's just look at the future for a moment. Crystal ball tell. What's key for accounting firms or the profession generally over the next few years? Oh, well, I, I would say the audit in 10 years will not be the audit uh, that I recognize from when I started. Sure. We will have the situation where even on the, on the smallest firm, they will have the ability to look at 100% of the purchase invoices, 100% of the sales invoices, 100% of this and 100% of that and have some uh, form of AI that says, here are the exceptions. I'll give you an example. Today, one of my firms talked about the IRS. The IRS said, we would like to look at all your sales invoices. And they said, well, yes, okay, here you go. There's 30-something pages of sales invoices here, line items, God knows how many hundreds of they were there. And they sent this through to them. And they came back the next day and said, these three sales invoices are anomalies. Can you please explain them? Wow. So if the IRS can do that, and the IRS and the HMRC have the similar, shall we say, issues yes. addressing them, you can imagine that in, in 10 years or so, I expect even the, the street front auditor, sole trader, to be able to do that because there are softwares coming through at the moment mm. that if you buy off the shelf, they'll do more or less that because they'll yeah. just get better and better. But the audit will still be there because people will need that level of assurance. And, and when it comes to compliance... The taxman will want to know that you, Mr. ABC Limited, that you have got a third-party test mm. of veracity. So it will change the way we do things and all the rest of it. But the other thing I think will change in the audit or the assurance side of things for sure is the deliverables at the end. Yes, there'll be this test that everything is okay. But as I said earlier, the, the going concern aspect will be there, a much stronger, you know, what level of going concern, what level of assurance we can give for going concern. And the other thing is the add-ons, if you will, where the professional will be expected not only to say, okay, you got a clean bill of health, but you've got a couple of issues here that you can resolve and blah, blah, blah. And we believe you, for the next 18 months from the date of signing, that you will still be a uh, going concern subject to A, B, and C. We'll also be expected to say, however, we believe you should do X, Y, Z, uh, or train your people in ABC and, and give them that extra value add, hmm. which will be business development concepts and ideas and, and uh, results and persuade them to take that. So I think that will become part, it's, it's no longer consultancy, I think that will be part of the audit. Yeah. 
Graham, this has been fascinating. If people want to have a conversation with you, find out a bit more about Praxity, how might they best get in touch? Well, either via Praxity.com or my LinkedIn page. And I do have a Twitter account that I, I tweet out, but that tends to be more social. And I blog roughly uh, every fortnight on what you might call business development or personal development concepts. I, I tend to take a, a concept or an idea that's uh, hit me when I'm walking the dog Great. in the morning and build on that as to how that goes from anything from uh, jet lag and how to overcome it through to how to deal with uh, difficult uh, individuals. <laughs> Sounds great. We'll put the link on that in the show notes. Uh, this you. has been terrific. Graham, leave us, would you, for the accountants and managing partners, leaders listening, give us your best piece of advice, perhaps that you've been given or you want to share with them to help them raise the game. I think it's probably the one my grandmother gave me. My good Scots granny. You've got two eyes, two ears, one mouth. Use them in that proportion. That's nice. Graham Gordon, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Accounting Leaders Podcast with me, Rob Brown. I want to personally thank you for spreading the word and sharing our show with your accounting network. And if you are an accountant who wants to master the skills of winning business for your firm and enhancing your income and career prospects, our Business Development Academy site has some great training for you at bdacademy.pro. Now do connect to me on LinkedIn and at the Rob Brown on Twitter. I'd love to hear what you think about this show and our other hugely popular sister podcast, Accounting Influence. Until next time, enjoy the rest of your day.